We had another notable weekend in pro football with some great playoff games. The great Tom Brady, the GOAT, retired, and a very significant racial discrimination lawsuit filed against the NFL. That and the top compliance and ethics stories all on This Week in FCPA. Hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Trial of the Century, The Enron Trial, where with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the case, I take a look at the issues around the trial, the witnesses, and the outcome. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 289 for the week ending. February 4, 2022, uh, happy birthday, Mom, and the Brady Retires edition. It's been a heck of a week for pro football, Jay. We have the GOAT of pro football retiring. We have two teams going to the Super Bowl in your former hometown, and we have a former head coach suing the NFL for racial discrimination. But uh, I'm not here to... Praise Caesar. I'm here to talk about this week's compliance and ethics stories that caught our collective attention. So what say you? Tom, did you get that text I sent you telling you you were the greatest compliance uh, person of all time? Oh, you know what? I sent it to Tom Brady by mistake. That's why you didn't get it. Uh, you know, I've, I've gotten so many of those that I, it may have just been lost in the text the text shower, Jay. But... Uh, before we get to the stories, I think we have to take a week to congratulate the Rams and the Bengals. Well done, both. Uh, great game of uh, AFC and NFC championships. And, of course, hats off to the GOAT, Tom Brady, uh, Michigan man, number six draft pick, seven Super Bowl titles, uh, I think double the number of playoff wins from anyone else, um, highest number, uh, three separate pro football Hall of Fame Fame careers, uh, played until he was 44. Um, at a high level. At a high level. Uh, and then the Brian Flores lawsuit, which was just, uh, I think, is devastating to the NFL. Uh, a coach who, after two winning seasons, was unceremoniously fired, leaving one black head coach in the uh, NFL. Uh, the Texans fired their black head coach after one season. Uh, Flores claims that uh, he went to two sham interviews in his complaint and names names. He uh, talks about the lack of opportunity for black head coaches, not only for an initial job, but for second or third chances that are routinely given uh, white coaches. Um, here's, uh, here's the thing that, that struck me, though, Jay, as bad as the facts laid out in this are, uh, and this takes a uh, page from your former um, career, he's never going to get another lunch or job in the NFL again. Uh, the NFL, I think, will blackball him, and uh, it will go the way of Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. I think he has ended his pro football career, and I think he's 40 years old. Uh, I don't know what set him off to file this lawsuit, uh, he uh, had been interviewing after his termination, I think last week uh, or two weeks ago, by the Miami Dolphins. So um, something must have happened to really set him off. Uh, I know he interviewed with the uh, Houston Texans, 
and um, it's just a bad look for the NFL right before the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, there's just going to be, I think, more and more coming out over over the next few weeks, and we might actually get some insight, Tom, into what set him off. But uh, I know you or I would not be happy if we got called into an interview where the job was already given away. And uh, take that and take the level and, you know, everything that's at hand. It's quite courageous, like you said, for him to throw away his career at 40 years old. Well, we had uh, some interesting stories this week in the world of compliance and ethics, uh, Jay. It was led off by we had an opinion release. We have had a very few of those over the past couple of years, but we had one released yesterday, opinion release uh, 2201. I wrote about it. Bill Steinman wrote about it <clears throat> in the FCPA blog. We've linked to both of those articles. We've linked to the uh, uh, opinion release itself as well on the DOJ website. It was a uh, interesting case, a very unique fact pattern, Jay, where uh, a ship was moved, trying to go into to a port in a country for discharge of cargo, repair and refit. Uh, port authorities sent the ship uh, to wait in another location. It turned out that other location was in the territorial waters of another country, country A, and country A promptly uh, arrested the captain and impounded the ship. The captain had a medical condition that required ongoing treatment, which he was not allowed. He was held incommunicado. Uh, The crew was held. As I said, the ship was impounded. A pretty dire set of facts. Uh, Some, a representative, it's unclear whether it was a representative of company, country A, or simply a third-party representative made a demand for $150,000 cash payment to uh, get the uh, captain out of jail. The company in question, the shipping company, went to the Department of Justice for an opinion release, or an opinion rather, of whether or not the payment of that 150000 would be uh, considered uh, illegal under the FCPA. Obviously, when you pay to get somebody out of jail, uh, cash with no receipt, no charge, uh, no rap sheet, no any documentation, it raises significant red flags. The shipping company also sought help from the U.S. Embassy and U.S. agencies, all to no avail. They even hired their own third-party representative to negotiate. And the Department of Justice held that this was not a violation of the FCPA for a couple of reasons, Jay. Uh, The first of all, that the payment uh, was not with corrupt intent. Uh, the reason for the payment or the primary reason for the payment was to get the captain out because of his medical condition. So that generally falls under the health, uh, physical safety, or liberty uh, exception, uh, not exception, but extortion payments uh, generally recognized as uh, being outside the FCPA. The second thing, Jay, was that the shipping company did not have any business in country A so that there was no business to obtain or retain. That's a a more narrow reading of that language than we typically see from the Department of Justice, although I think it was tempered by the fact that uh, the medical condition of the um, captain himself. So uh, a very interesting set of facts, a unique set of facts that may not be replicated uh, in the future. And one other thing about this opinion release I'd like to note, Jay, the Department of Justice actually gave an answer to the company within a week. 
maybe even less than a week of being delivered the fact pattern. Uh, I think that's tip of the hat to the DOJ for recognizing the seriousness of the situation. That happened in October of 2021, and then uh, the formal opinion release was released this this week. So uh, it shows that the DOJ can respond quickly when the situation is called for. So um, interesting opinion, uh, interesting uh, that the DOJ seemed to cut back a little bit on the obtain or retain business, but I must also caution uh, we had um, liberty, meaning uh, someone was thrown in jail for no reason, apparent reason, and then the health condition. We had one other um, opinion released back in 2013 that dealt with a health issue where the DOJ allowed a payment for medical services. Uh, so perhaps if uh, health of uh, someone involved is critical and the money paid is for health services or to get somebody some medicines, uh, it's going to uh, approve it. But uh, kudos to the company for using the release opinion, uh, opinion procedure. Kudos to the lawyers involved for uh, getting to the DOJ with a set of facts uh, that allowed the DOJ to make this um, opinion release, Jay. So uh, we're going to check in now and see what's on Dick Casson's mind at the FCPA blog. And uh, Dick's asking, does your C-suite and boardroom have unrealistic expectations about compliance? One of the least understood aspects of an anti-corruption compliance outside the company, or rather outside the compliance community, is that perfection is not required. Compliance involves people, and whenever people are involved, things tend to get messy. Compliance professionals know it, and so do the feds. None of the federal guidance for anti-bribery corruption mandates a perfect score. Instead, what's required are compliance programs that, and here's the key part, can help prevent FCPA violations. And if a violation occurs, they can help detect, remediate, and ultimately report them. There's a world of difference between a compliance program that's required to prevent FCPA violations and one that can help. A program required to prevent violations would be successful only if it prevented all violations, and a program that can help prevent violations can still be successful even if violations occur. The can help prevent formation comes from the DOJ SEC FCPA resource guide, the best primary resource for compliance professionals. It says, quote, a company's compliance and ethics program can help prevent, detect, remediate, and report misconduct, close quote. For federal prosecutors, the primary resources about compliance include the DOJ's Evaluation for Corporate Compliance Programs, the Justice Manual, and the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. They all make it crystal clear that not even the best compliance program can or will prevent all FCPA violations, and therefore, not all violations should lead to prosecutions. So if we can all agree that stuff happens— Of course, recurring violations might mean a compliance program is faulty, but in real life, though, even the greatest compliance program cannot guarantee zero violations. When compliance professionals are talking to each other, this is understood. Nothing I've set up to now would come as a major surprise to them. But people from the outside of compliance, we're talking about those in the C-suite and the boardroom, they tend to have unrealistic expectations. They might expect that a compliance program to prevent, prevent all FCPA violations, so that when the violations happen, they'll blame their compliance officers or compliance program even when the feds wouldn't. 
That's why an ancillary but important task of a compliance leader should be to bring expectations down to earth. Without making excuses in advance of blaming problems on others, they can lay out a real versus unreal expectations. They can explain the difference between compliance programs required to prevent all violations and programs that can help prevent them. Everyone hopes that FCPA violations won't happen, but if they do happen, the unpleasant aftermath will be much more manageable when executives and directors start out on the same page and have realistic expectations about what compliance officers and their programs can and can't do. Tom, next up, uh, what is happening to KPMG? Well, KPMG in the United Kingdom continues to stumble over its own two feet, and this time in a very bad way, Jay. It's uh, relating to the Carillion audits where KPMG said admitted to the Financial Reporting Council, the FRC, that it had misled investigators over its routine inspections of audits around Carillion. They fabricated documents to turn over to the regulators and a series of uh, really bad actions by KPMG. KPMG tried to say, well, it was uh, uh, former partners and former employees, uh, but of course KPMG allowed this conduct uh, to occur and then continue. So uh, there is currently a tribunal which is going to uh, lay down some penalties uh, uh, against probably KPMG and their former partners and associates uh, who were involved in this. But um, it's a really bad look for KPMG. Uh, Obviously, the Carillion uh, insolvency in the United Kingdom was a disaster, resulting in um, 3,000 job losses and and literally chaos across uh, public sector projects in which its uh, services were used. So, um, bad bad news for KPMG. Uh, whenever you lie to the regulators, Jay, it's much like your mother said. It's never a good thing to lie. Well, next up, we're checking in with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Uh, this is Matt writing in his own blog, Radical Compliance. And the LRN company has released their annual survey this year. It's the 2022 edition of the Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report, and uh, we will link to it in the show notes. And basically, it's taking a look at findings that most companies' ethical culture has emerged stronger than ever thanks to two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. LRN polled nearly 1,200 ethics, compliance, and legal officers at corporations around the world. Most of them have at least 1,000 employees or more. The respondents painted an upbeat picture that most companies emphasized their ethical values during the pandemic, and senior executives learned on those, rather leaned on those ethical values when responding to challenges. Some of the more notable numbers are 82% said ethical culture is stronger as a result of the experience of coping with the pandemic. 78% said their firms relied upon company values rather than rules and procedures to weather the storm. 83% said ethics and compliance considerations played an important role in shaping their organization's response to COVID-19. 66% said senior leaders integrated ethics and compliance considerations into decision-making. And finally, 64% said executive leadership, 
communicated candidly about challenges facing the company. Many of these figures increased from already high numbers in 2021, by the way. Cynics might have assumed that last year's high numbers were one-time bump induced by the pandemic, but perhaps not. Perhaps the pandemic has tilted the C-suite's thinking about ethics in a more fundamental way. If such, a change is indeed the case. I suspect the proof of it will come in next year's numbers. After all, the report reflects compliance officers' sentiments in 2021. We still have plenty of pandemic turmoil, and large corporations generally had a good year financially last year. This coming year, with inflation, rising interest rates, and prolonged supply chain disruptions, might be more challenging from the bottom line. Let's see how many C-suites still embrace a thoughtful, ethical culture under those circumstances. Culture and managers versus leaders. The LRN report also had some interesting stats about the actions of senior managers compared to those who are middle managers. LRN compared the senior executives against middle managers across several questions about behavior. Matt is not sure how alarmed he should be by any of these divisions. Several almost strike him as to be expected. For example, senior executives have an easier time responding to challenges in a manner that's consistent with corporate values because senior executives have more discretion to put aside financial targets. Conversely, 56 to 63% numbers split where middle managers were better at balancing business goals and employee well-being. That tracks because middle managers have a better understanding of what's important to employees rather than senior executives perched in their lofty spots. Matt's advice for compliance officers reading this report would be simply to ask yourself, okay, how would our managers and senior executives rank on the questions like this? Where would you see splits in ethical conduct and understanding, and how big would those gaps be? Quickly, let's turn to training. The LRN report did flag a few potential concerns about ethics training. Now, we should always remember that LRN sells ethics and compliance training materials, so of course the report would verse such concerns. But it's not wrong to say that the pandemic did make training more difficult since so many more employees now work remotely. Compliance officers do need to think about whether the training methods we use today are really as effective as they could be. The LRN report asks compliance officers what steps they've taken to make ethics and compliance materials more accessible. That is, can people access your code, policies, and necessary forms from wherever they're working? Are online materials easily found and used, perhaps in an interactive format, or are they static documents like PDFs, the policy manual? The only statistic that alarms Matt is the fourth one, that only 40% of respondents took steps to strengthen controls around cybersecurity, privacy, and third-party risk management. Those are going to be huge concerns for corporations in the years to come, and success on those fronts will depend on employee behavior much more than on technical grounds. Compliance programs will have a big role to play for all these risks in the future. Tom, tell us how the headspin enforcement action is a how-to on how to remediate. Before we get to that story, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back.
Jay, this is a very interesting SEC enforcement action. It's not in anti-corruption. Um, it's in uh, general fraud, in pumping up uh, stock prices to get uh, increased value. And it's not even a public company. It's a private company. So there's lots of lessons learned here. Basically, Headspin was a software company it's worth about $300 million. The uh, in, in Series B and C financing, the CEO uh, claimed that the company was uh, closer to a billion, got funding to um, get to that valuation, so it became a unicorn. So there's um, – and they did this all through fraudulent bookkeeping, um, creation of fake invoices, and uh, other nefarious conduct. There are some, several important lessons from this case. Uh, even if you're a private company, you can still have SEC oversight. The CEO himself controlled, uh, did not allow either the bookkeeper or accounts payable or the auditors to see all of the documents and created fraudulent, fraudulent documents when he needed to. Uh, the company was able to return the money to the Series B and C uh, funding round and then satisfy the rest of the investors to uh, the satisfaction of the SEC. But they engaged in six remedial measures, I think, that were critical, of uh, which allowed the company to, amazingly enough, get uh, a zero fine and penalty, uh, although the former CEO still has an SEC complaint against him. Uh, so number one, the board convened a special committee of independent directors to lead the investigation. The board identified the CEO as the person responsible, terminated his employment, the board removed key senior management personnel, such as the COO and the general counsel and controller, although who were not a part of the illegal conduct, failed to carry out their responsibilities to prevent the wrongdoing. Uh, after this clean sweep, the board brought in a new management team and retained a subject matter expert to correct the prior deficiencies. The board added new board members with appropriate subject matter expertise, and the company implemented a new set of internal controls. The reason I thought this was so significant, Jay, was that the um, it showed the power of an aggressive and indeed creative remediation, the, the payment back of literally everyone who had been involved to the satisfaction of the SEC, I think really drove the SEC to come, come to the conclusion it did and ask for no, no fine and penalty. So lots of lessons from the uh, for the compliance professional. If you get yourself in a bad FCPA case, uh, there may be a way to uh, actually remediate and get down to a very uh, low fine and or penalty. Jay, uh, what have we come to learn about scaling up ethically? Thanks for asking, Tom. This comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights, and sorry if I butcher your name, Hemant Taneha. Growth is good. Growth should be the goal of any company, but hypergrowth or blitz scaling for the wrong reasons is just irresponsible potentially harmful. From the dawn of the dot-com boom in 1995 through 2020, responsible growth might have seemed like an oxymoron in Silicon Valley. The tech startup ecosystem was more likely to celebrate growth by any means. One of those myths is that we were in a winner-take-all economy, so that in every market category, one company is going to run away with 75% of the economics and everyone else gets the table scraps. That may have been true 20 years or even 10 years ago when a lot of startups were network effect companies, which meant everyone would want to belong to the biggest network. Those are companies today like Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. 
But today, many startups are reinventing big, long-standing industries that impact everyday life. Industries like insurance, healthcare, energy, banking, and shipping. Look at Gusto. It built a multi-billion dollar business by serving 100,000 small companies in a market where there are millions of small companies yet to be touched. Tesla is not going to make all the electric cars in the world. So in these kinds of industries, market domination is almost impossible. Instead, companies should focus on aggressive but manageable growth. Another myth has been the first mover advantage. The idea that being first to introduce a new technology or business model will lead to an enormous lead over your competitors. That mentality is used to justify irresponsible tactics like move fast and break things. But that myth has been exploded by first movers. Google wasn't the first search engine. AWS wasn't the first cloud computing platform. And Netflix certainly was not the first streaming video service. What can confuse people is that sometimes irresponsible innovation works. It most most famously worked for Uber. The company's caustic culture celebrated breaking rules, behaving badly, and instead of working with clients like cities they were moving into, they stormed into them and later only asked for forgiveness. There is an optimal growth rate unique to each company. What is the pace of hiring required to service the next market segment? And can the company get the right employees and properly train them? Other companies have scaled responsibly and aggressively. One is Stripe, the online payments company that became the commerce background for the startup ecosystem. Providing an online payments API globally was a massive opportunity. Stripe took it in steps, building from its core. It wanted to first get the majority of new founded companies to sign up for their platform, and that ensured their future. It's important to acknowledge, too, that outside forces impact growth and must be managed, something that authors hear for, that the author hears from every founder who wants to build responsibly is that it's vitally important to choose the right investors and board, making sure they share the same mindset. Choosing the right investors and board isn't enough. It's up to the founder to constantly reinforce the message of responsible growth. Conditioning investors and all stakeholders to embrace such a philosophy and doing it over and over again. Thus, the best CEOs leave no question about their stance. They want to build an enduring company that benefits society and stakeholders alike. Tom, why does Carrie Penman think that compliance should be the silo to lead ESG? Uh, this comes to us from Navex Global's Risk and Compliance uh, Journal, or Risk and Compliance Matters, rather, and it's based upon a survey of uh, top 10 trends in risk and compliance, or report, rather, from Navex Global. Always great stuff. Uh, so, uh, Kerry has some great overviews, I think, that really speak to why compliance needs to lead uh, ESG. Uh, increased investor demand and attention uh, drive the need for oversight expertise. What does compliance do? It uh, oversees a wide variety of, of different areas. Uh, what does compliance do in terms of risk? Well, it mitigates risk through risk assessments, risk mitigation strategies, but it creates value uh, for the corporations, and this goes hand-in-hand hand with ESG. Obviously, turning plans into action is a key part of what compliance does. And for these reasons and others, Kerry really advocates, as I've done for some time, Jay, that compliance is the most well-suited department in a corporation or corporate function 
uh, to lead an ESG effort. So uh, we've linked to Carrie's article, which, of course, links to the full report. So I'd urge you uh, to check this out as we move into 20, uh, gosh, Jay, the second month of 2022 now. Uh, I think ESG is going to become more important for compliance professionals, and it's something that uh, we're all going to have to pay attention to going forward. Uh, what does Deloitte say about boardroom agendas for 2022, Jay? Thanks for asking, Tom. This comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and the authors are Robert Lamb and Carrie Oven. Increasingly, there is a widespread belief that corporations cannot and should not ignore the world around them. But rather than being engaged members of society and act, act to address the challenges we face. For example, the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer reported that 61% of respondents expect CEOs to fill the void left by government in fixing societal ills, while 65% feel CEOs should be as accountable to the public as they are to shareholders. These heightened expectations for CEOs and their companies and the responsibilities those expectations imply are also significant for the boards that oversee CEOs and management teams. While boards remain responsible for overseeing business fundamentals, such as strategy and risk, they must also focus on a host of additional new issues that will occupy more and more of their time in the boardroom. Here are some issues to consider. Climate change. It's difficult to overstate the extent to which companies, their management, and their boards are being asked to consider how they impact the environment and when they could, what they can do to minimize or eliminate negative impacts. Boards in particular, compensation committees, are also focusing on how to properly incentivize management to facilitate the achievement of environmental goals. A focus on the workforce, including wellness and DEI. For many years, companies have made broad of general statements about the importance of their workforce. However, companies' actions were not always consistent with these words. Events over the past few years, notably the pandemic and the movement for racial justice that followed the murders of George Floyd and others, have placed great pressure on companies of all sizes and industries to focus on their workforce. Technology, Risks and Opportunities Like the fabled city that never sleeps, technology is dynamic, seven days each week, 52 weeks a year, presenting new opportunities and risks. Technology also impacts the board's composition as nominating governance committees seek to determine whether the board needs to hire members with specialized deep knowledge of the tech world, whether having a tech-savvy board is sufficient. Board effectiveness, an agenda of its own. While these and other matters require board considerations seem to keep growing, there is no commensurate increase in the time boards and committees have to address these matters. Accordingly, another item likely to be added to their agendas is the very effectiveness of the boards and its committees. The focus on effectiveness covers all aspects of the board. Here are some that should be looked at. Does the onboarding program provide new directors with sufficient knowledge of the company, its industry, and operations? Do board and committee pre-reads and other materials provide the right mix of info? Are they being provided sufficiently in advance of meetings so that directors can read and digest them? Should meetings be held in person, virtually, or both? And are directors up to speed on the rapid and extensive changes affecting their companies and their businesses? One of the key ingredients to a continuous improvement at the board level is an annual board self-assessment. 
A robust assessment could use specific constructive suggestions to keep the board on to, to keep the board being as effective as possible. Like technology, the board's role and responsibility is also dynamic, constantly changing and growing. So in 2022, the only certainties are that new challenges and opportunities will continue to arise and that the best boards will continue to be adaptable, meeting those new challenges and opportunities with skills and determination to be the best they can be. Tom, why don't you tell us about this recent three-part episode podcast that you've recorded with Matt Kelly and Mike Volkov. So actually, Jay, it's one podcast, but Mike Volkov wrote a three-part blog post series in crime, uh, corruption, crime, and compliance that we based it on. We took a look at the speech by Jonathan Kantner on uh, the change in the Biden administration's uh, antitrust focus, and it's a pretty big change, Jay. Uh, The new uh, head of the section, Jonathan Cantor, wants to focus on a variety of anti-competitive effects, not simply price to comp- uh, uh, unfair pricing to consumers. They want to look at changes in uh, labor markets, consumer benefits, perhaps anticipated reductions in competition, investigation. And uh, this is a much broader, uh, almost uh, holistic approach to antitrust. Kantner also wants to reinvigorate Section 2 Sherman Act claims, which basically says the government says you're too big, uh, then well, they're going to file an antitrust suit against you. Of course, that's what busted up uh, Standard Oil uh, at the turn of the 20th century, but it also was brought, same claim brought against AB, uh, AT&T, rather, which led to the dissolution of AT&T, and even was in the 90s was a claim against Microsoft, but it hadn't been used really since then. So we're going to see a much more aggressive approach. The prior administration had relied more on structural changes, selling off, et cetera, divestitures to uh, ameliorate antitrust concerns, but Kantner also criticized those and said that this new approach uh, will be uh, much broader. Of course, this is going to require additional resources, and he has already gone to Congress to uh, try to get more funding for the antitrust division. Uh, Many Republicans cheer these efforts, Jay, because they want to go after, uh, they believe, the uh, invidious of this big tech, Facebook, Amazon, Google, uh, etc., uh, given the day that uh, the company formerly known as Facebook, now Meta, had, where they lost over $250 billion, you might wonder, uh, maybe they th- they are get- beginning to understand they're too big. But nevertheless, uh, it's going to portend a, a big change in antitrust uh, interpretation, uh, enforcement, and potentially uh, court cases. Uh, Mike joined Matt Kelly and I uh, for a very uh, in-depth podcast on this, but Jay, we tied it into Microsoft's acquisition or attempts to acquire Activision Blizzard. We looked at uh, that acquisition through this new lens and uh, tried to take a look at or tried to uh, put these comments to test to see if this acquisition will be approved or not by the Department of Justice. So, a uh, good podcast to check out, and Mike's three-part series is excellent. Jay, for our final story, um, we have an article which really speaks to, I think, a topic we've talked about previously, but it expands upon it a little bit. What does uh, Brett Beasley have for us about uh, unclear values in a corporate setting? 
Yeah, th- this is my favorite article of the week, and this comes to us from Notre Dame's Deloitte Center of Ethical Leadership. Um, a proverbial question that Brett asks is, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Long ago, George Orwell made the observation that there may be a relationship between the two. That is, the way we talk, he suggested, might affect the way we walk. Orwell's explanation focused on politics. Most political speech and writing, he said, is the defense of the indefensible. So rather than tell the truth, politicians use euphemisms, question begging, and share cloudy vagueness to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Orwell called on his reader to avoid unclear ways of speaking and writing. This was because, quote, an effect can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form or so on indefinitely, close quote. Was Orwell right? Some may disagree with his take on the link between bad writing and bad politics, but it appears that Orwell's theories applies well to something he never considered, corporate value statements. A new study shows that unclear writing and value statements matters. Unclarity sends a signal that a corporation can't be trusted, and accordingly to the study's authors, it's a reliable signal too. They find that corporations that hide behind fuzzy, unclear values often do have something they're hiding. The team of researchers behind the study, led by David Markowitz from the University of Oregon, considered the value statements of 188 S&P 500 companies. They drew inspiration from earlier studies that had shown that companies with negative annual earnings write in a less clear manner in their reports to the SEC. They reasoned that a similar process might occur with ethics. Together, the team was out to chronicle which companies had ethics infractions like environmental violations, fraud, anti-competitive activity, and they also determined which codes of conduct were, quote, linguistically obfuscated, unquote. These codes were full of abstraction, jargon, and long, overly complex explanations. The results of the study proved their hypothesis correct. Companies with ethics infractions did resort to unclear language in order to specifically hide them. The researchers then asked additional questions. They wanted to know if unclear language actually works. Does it effectively hide a company's problems? They showed corporate value station statements to, stu- to study participants and asked about their perceptions. The participants saw the companies with clearly written value statements as more moral, warmer, more trustworthy compared to those jargon-laden value statements. Markowitz and his colleagues write, it's continually important to consider how corporations communicate as their word patterns reveal social and psychological dynamics, such as deception, and further connect to how people feel. Here's what to keep in mind as you craft your corporate value statement. Avoid floweriness. Exercise friendliness with caution. Pursue fluency. The key to communicate in a way that is easy to process or fluent, as psychologists would put it. For this purpose, Orwell has classic advice that still holds true to today. Never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word when a short word will do. If it's possible to cut out a word, always cut it out. 
Never use the passive when you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase like a certain je ne sais quoi, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And finally, break any of those rules sooner than anything outright barbarous. So uh, just a real, real something to think about. And I think, unfortunately, we have lots of uh, antecedents out there that we can say resemble some of these remarks. So, Tom, it's time to talk about podcasts and other happenings. What do we have going on this week? So we had a lot going on this week, Jay. Uh, first of all, a new month, a new B Compliance Live series. This month, I have Ellen Smith. Ellen's a former trade director, uh, director of trade compliance, rather, at Baker Hughes. And uh, she has a, a fascinating journey to and from the trade director's chair. She, in the pandemic, started her own consulting practice in trade compliance. So, uh, uh, And uh, she has a little segment on each episode, which she calls her favorite adopted saying, which is saying she's adopted from people who've been her colleagues or mentors. And there's some uh, pretty interesting sayings in there. So check out uh, The Compliance Live this month with Ellen Smith. Part one posted this past Tuesday. We talked about her uh, college uh, life and early academic career. Uh, our colleague, Allie McDivitt, over at Compliance Week, did one of uh, Compliance Week's five-part series uh, this week. Uh, now, you do have to have a subscription to get this, but it's an end-to-end story of a ransomware attack where they were able to uh, kind of catalog all of the steps someone who's involved in one of those has to take. It's a fabulous series. Allie's done a great job on it. If you've enjoyed any of the prior Compliance Week series, five-part series uh, that they've done, uh, you'll enjoy this one. I hope to uh, interview Allie on this shortly for another podcast. In conjunction with this series, Compliance Week is running a special discount. If you want to join Compliance Week, you can get it for a year. It's only $199. I've done it. Uh, I would urge you to do so. It's a great resource for the compliance community. Uh, we've got the discount code listed in the show notes. Um, the podcast series, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, is up and going now. It's on a variety of platforms, uh, iTunes, Megaphone, uh, J.D. Supra, if you're interested in all at Enron and what happened in the trial, this is really the podcast series uh, for you. And for those who have never listened to the Compliance Kitchen, if you're interested in a daily nugget, a tasty nugget indeed, of uh, trade compliance news, check out the Compliance Kitchen. It was originally named What's Cooking in the Compliance Kitchen, so that's the reason for the uh, reference to tastiness. But my colleague Sylvia Sermon does a yeoman's job. She posts five episodes a week. It's literally three to five minutes on one topic. She gives you what you need to know about that issue. So check out the Compliance Kitchen on the podcast uh, uh, Compliance Podcast Network. If you're interested in trade compliance or just interested in keeping up with compliance, it is a podcast for you. Jay? So one more thing we'd like to share with you. Corporate Compliance Insight has released their new ebook from Tom. It's called the FCPA 2021 Year in Review, and it's available for free. What's the price, Tom? Uh, that would be at no cost, Jay, but I used two words when you used one. Uh oh, what does that say about us? <laughs> you have a better editor than me. <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, we would like to thank you for joining us. Uh, Tom is the voice of compliance, and he can always be reached 
at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. And we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 289 for the week ending February 4th, the 2022 Tom Brady Retires Edition. We appreciate you spending some of your day or weekend with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out the newest podcast to the Compliance Podcast Network, which premieres on Tuesday, February 8th. We're going to look at the intersection of ESG and compliance with a special 10-part series of various topics with some some ESG and compliance luminaries. I know you'll enjoy this special series, so check it out, premiering on the Compliance Podcast Network. As an added bonus, it will be in video pod format on YouTube. So if you like to consume information via YouTube, it will also be on the Compliance Podcast Network YouTube channel. If you'd like any more information on the topics we've discussed, you can obviously check them out in the show notes. You can reach out to myself, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I will be back to take a look at next week's top stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.